verse 1 of this passage begins with Jesus concluding his discourse to his disciples before their missions trip throughout all of Israel, proclaiming that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the rest of this discourse, as we go into chapter 11, we, we begin to kind of see why this missions trip was necessary, as even some of Jesus' closest followers had misunderstandings of who Jesus was and what he had come into the world to do. And it's a problem that continues to persist, frankly. Uh, Just this week, a a dear friend of mine posted something on one of their social media pages uh, as they discovered that a pastor that they had been following online was actually a false teacher, proclaiming things that aren't true, proclaiming things that are actually downright heresy. And it broke their heart, and they posted online discussing what they had figured out, because it's a very popular preacher. But that wasn't the shocking part. The shocking part was that most of, or a good portion of the replies to that, to this message, were defending that character, excusing them, or making up, saying why they agreed with their heretical claims, and attempting to to support them, even saying that yes, you. T- I don't even want to go into it, but the guy was claiming that you too could become a god. Really r- ridiculous stuff. Things that have nothing to do with biblical Christianity. Another friend of mine wrote on that same thread that you don't even need churches anymore at all. Exposing their ignorance that the church is more than just a series of lectures. As we commented on before the beginning of this service, this is a community. The church is a lot more than just a talking head up here. Far deeper than that. And so two things became certain as I watched this unfold. One, I am so grateful for some of the solid churches that I have had the privilege to attend. Ones that preach the truth. Ones that call out all that nonsense for exactly what it is. And I'm grateful that this church is certainly one of them now. And two, as I'm watching this unfold, I'm realizing I will always have a job. Because, oh my goodness, to paraphrase C.S. Lewis, good teaching must exist if for no other reason than to counter bad teaching, of which there is plenty of these days, unfortunately. But that's a whole other message unto itself. Because that being said, even solid believers have questions about the faith even misconceptions about some of the doctrines of the faith. John the Baptist himself was even one of them, as we pick up in verse 2, that says that when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to them, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Now, To back up before we go forward, Matthew gives more details in chapter 14 about how and why John ended up in prison. Uh, Simply put, though, he was thrown in prison by Herod Antipas for the same reason all the biblical prophets were imprisoned and why so many are still persecuted today. Because he spoke the truth. As you've heard over the past couple of weeks as we've been going through Matthew chapter 10, there are many who hate the truth. There are people who despise the truth, who are hostile towards the truth. 
and will have no hesitancy to persecute the truth. As is basically what happened with John. And we'll get into that when we come to that passage. But from his position in prison, John asks a question. Are you the one? Are you this coming Messiah that we've promised, that we've heard the promises of? Or are we waiting for another? Now, how is that even possible? I mean, in the Gospel of John, from chapter 1, John the Baptist knew who Jesus was, clearly recognizing him as the Messiah. So, So what's going on here? And simply put, John had some questions. His expectations for what the Messiah would be weren't being met. And to his credit, the common understanding to the Jews at the first century was that their Messiah was going to be a little bit different than how we recognize him today to be. They thought he was going to be more of a political leader or a a national leader that would, upon his arrival, cast off the Romans and restore Israel to the former glory of the days of David and Solomon. That's what they were thinking the Messiah would do. And that was half of the truth. Their their conception wasn't wrong, it was just their timing. Because yes, the Messiah would be the heir of David, according to 2 Samuel chapter 7. And the increase of his government will have no end, according to Isaiah 9. Those are all true. But they failed to see, as many did, that the coming of the Messiah would be in two parts. And the parts that they thought would be at the first coming were happening at, would actually happen at the second. Although many rabbis remarked before Christ that that certainly was possible. This is not something that Christians invented after Christ came. It was the, the Jews at the time were even speculating this. They were reading in Isaiah 53 that the Messiah would be cut off for the sins of his people, but yet still have an everlasting kingdom. They tried to put it together, but they were confused. How is this Messiah going to be cut off and killed, but yet have an everlasting kingdom? They lacked the clarity that we now have in the New Testament. They tried to put it together, but many missed it altogether and just thought it was all going to come together at once. Let me put it, let me, let me explain it differently. Because when you read the Old Testament, you experience something of an optical illusion. It's like when you stand at the base of a mountain and it looks like it has two peaks. Yet from a better perspective, you could see that the higher peak is actually a completely different mountain, a couple of miles away and much taller. But when you're standing at the base of it, it looks like it's just one mountain with two peaks. The same effect takes place when you're reading the Old Testament. It's hard to discern uh, without the clarity of the New Testament, what would be Jesus' first coming at the humility, in his humility for the sake of the cross, and his second coming where he comes as the conquering king. Sometimes it's just a comma that uh, separates one coming from the second in some of these verses. Certainly takes place in Isaiah 61. You can look that up later. It's talking about all these healings and great things Jesus is going to do, and then proclaiming the day of vengeance of our God. Just a comma in between those two thoughts. But I came here to preach on Matthew 11, not Isaiah 61, though, so I'm going to have to bring it back in. 
But frankly, many people today misunderstand Jesus. Many people today uh, come to Jesus for false reasons, to, to a false Messiah, and create and experience a false salvation. Because here's what I mean. I, I've met people that come to Jesus to get money. I come, I, people come to Jesus to attempt to get physical healing at some of these farce that, is, that we call a healing crusade. Or parents bring their, kid, bring their kids to Jesus to teach them, only to teach them the difference between right and wrong. That's why they bring their kids to Jesus. They have, they have, nothing, they have no spiritual life, but they want to teach their kids right and wrong, so they bring them to church. Now, I never got that one personally, because in a couple of years, they're going to be teaching their kids everything but what the Bible says about what's right and wrong. I never got that one. You can explain that one to me after church. You could do that with just the Ten Commandments. Never mind, that's a whole other story. So, But this happens all the time. And if you come to Jesus to get one of those things, money, security, um, Jesus didn't have to die on the cross to give you those things. The cross wasn't necessary to give you those things. He could have just given us those things. Rather, Jesus came into the world not to give us stuff, but to save sinners. Save sinners like you and like me. That's why he came into the world. He didn't come to set up this glorious earthly kingdom, at least at his first coming, where everything would be comfortable and easy for, him, for those believers. But he came to open up the only way to the kingdom of God by taking our sins upon the cross and opening up that ability to, to go to be with the Father when our day comes someday. So no, we, we don't come to Jesus to get security. We don't come to Jesus to get money or anything else. We come to Jesus to get Jesus. We come to Jesus to be saved. We come to him to be redeemed. That first and foremost, all those other things are just side benefits that we get to enjoy. But coming back to our text, in short, it's okay to have questions. I'd even say it's a good thing because the reason why I, I know what I do of the scriptures is because I have questions. And as you seek answers, you get answers. That's the beautiful thing about the church. That's the beautiful thing about the scriptures. There actually are answers in there. And you'll notice that John wasn't passive in having his questions. He sent his disciples to talk to Jesus. He went to the source to get answers. So if that's you this morning and you have questions about the faith, that is a good thing. It's good to have questions because they lead to answers. So the question posed to Jesus here was, are you the one? Are you this Messiah that we promised would come? And so Jesus gives an answer in Matthew 11, verse 4, where he says, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up. 
and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now, what does that kind of sound like to you? Sounds like our first reading, wasn't it? It sounds like all of those prophecies that Isaiah had made 700 years before Jesus was even born. And it echoes throughout many other Old Testament prophets who wrote hundreds of years before Jesus' coming, saying he would do exactly these things. I love this. (laughs) And so... Jesus essentially replies, saying that this isn't what you expected, John. It might not look outwardly the way you thought. You thought this was going to be a political thing. You thought this was going to be a national thing. You thought that by me being risen up to to being the Messiah on the throne of David meant me springing you from jail, maybe. It's possible. This isn't what you expected, but I'm telling you these scriptures from Isaiah so that you will know, even though it's not what you expected, it's going exactly according to plan. And I love that. Because just like John, we are going to have questions about the faith. We're going to make mistakes on our interpretations when we read the Bible. We're going to connect the wrong dots when we try to discern God's plan for our lives. And there's going to be an incongruence between what we thought would happen and what we see unfolding before us. But when we realize that God is keeping his word, when we realize that there's not a single promise in the scriptures that has ever failed us, that God is faithful as he promises to be faithful, that ought to encourage us. When we see that God might not be giving me what I want, but he's giving me everything that he promised that he would. You might not get that promotion that you've been praying for or that you thought that you would get, but you'll notice that God will still provide for you, giving you everything that you need, even if it's not what we want. You might face health concerns in this lifetime. I certainly am. But you will agree where Paul wrote in Romans 8.18 that for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Oh, hallelujah. Things might seem out of control on this side of eternity. Things might seem confusing and hard to understand in this world. But God and his word will never and have never failed. He will not fail you in your trials in this lifetime. I can assure you of that. I'll fail him constantly, but he has never failed me. And so after Jesus gives this answer, Jesus addresses the crowds after this incident in verse 7. Where it says, as they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom was written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Before Jesus began his public ministry, people were drawn out to see this John the Baptist character. 
And Jesus is asking the simple question, why? (laughs) What was so interesting about this strange looking man in the wilderness that you went out to see him? As Jesus mentions, he was unremarkable in many ways, but where he was incredible is what matters. (laughs) Because he wasn't a king, he wasn't a statesman, he wasn't of powerful political influence. But as Jesus points out, he was a prophet, and which was a man who spoke on behalf of God. But more than that, he was more than just a prophet. He was the fulfillment of a prophecy. He was the fulfillment of the prophecy we just read from here. It's a, Jesus is quoting from Malachi chapter 3. Uh, making it clear that John the Baptist was prophesied of to be the one to prepare the way for the Messiah, to get people ready for the arrival of the coming one. And how did he prepare others for the arrival of Jesus? You might remember what John's message was. It was one of repentance, calling people to repentance calling people to turn from their sins and recognize their need for God's grace and God's forgiveness, which would come quickly in the person of Christ who would be revealed shortly after John. But how does repentance make you ready for the Messiah? Well, sometimes we need to hear the bad news before we understand how good the good news is. Because imagine for a second Let's just imagine, because I'm looking around and I know so many of you guys, let's just pretend that you weren't raised in the church. Let's pretend that you haven't been attending here in a number of decades. You come here and you show up and you're walking down the street and you see somebody holding up a sign that says, Jesus saves. What is your first question? From what? What, does he save me money like Aldi? <laughs> what, Jesus saves, what, what for? What am I being saved from? People only want a savior if there's something to be saved from. And perhaps that's where this idea of a political Messiah came from, because the people really hated the Romans that were oppressing them in the first century. So perhaps that was part of it. But once you understand that your sins... You're going against God's commandments. You're going against God's designs. Is a sin of which Isaiah 59 says has made a separation between you and God. That we cannot be where God is because of our sins. There's been made this separation. And since God is in heaven, that creates a problem for us when we attempt to pass to the other side, if we can't go to heaven, well, that gives us only one other choice, the Bible tells us. That's bad news. And it's further worse that our works cannot fix that separation. I cannot be a good enough person to atone for my misdeeds. I can't simply be that good. And upon understanding all of this, upon staring at this gap between me and the holy and perfect Father and this broken and sinful me, we begin to see why, or rather at that point, we are ready to hear some good news, aren't we? Upon staring that bad news in the face so badly. And that was the premise of John's ministry. 
to get people to recognize their need for a savior, to recognize we can't be good enough to atone for our own sins, that we have a bleak future in store for us if something doesn't change. And he tells people to turn from their sins, have this attitude of repentance towards God, an attitude of being ready for him, so that when the Messiah is publicly presented, they are ready to say yes. That was the purpose of John's ministry, to prepare the way of Jesus. And it's the same thing that informs our evangelism today. I can't just hold up a sign that says, Jesus saves. I have to tell you what for. Otherwise, it's like me offering you a car, but not giving you the keys to actually enjoy it. So with all that being said, let us conclude with one more verse. I think we can get that in. Where it says in verse 11, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has, not, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now, I find this amazing. Despite all of John's doubts and questions, Jesus still calls him the greatest in this passage. Isn't that encouraging? I mean, I can't help but to think about people like David when I read this passage, who himself was a murderer a liar, an adulterer, and yet God still calls David a man after God's own heart. That's the incredible power of the grace of God and the ability to cleanse our sins away. So if if you struggle with questions or struggle with your sins, if you struggle with temptations, don't be discouraged. God can, God's blood can make the foulest clean, a hymn of ours says. His blood avails for me. John's character was, of course, incredible as well. Speaking the truth in a time where it was hard to speak the truth. And as we noted a minute ago, he's facing consequences of doing just that. But what truly made him great was his calling. What God had called John the Baptist to do was what made him great. Because we we think of John as a New Testament character. Because we read about him in the New Testament. But it makes more sense to think of him as the last Old Testament prophet. And we begin to understand this passage a little bit better when we view it through that lens. Because all the prophets of old had only had a glimpse of and hints of this Messiah who was to come. Isaiah, in all of his beautiful writings that we read from this morning, he was privileged to carry this message, this beautiful mystery of this coming one who would come to take away the sins of the world. But he didn't fully see it happen. He, even Isaiah, is putting it together, probably wondering, how can all of this be? And then you have John the Baptist saying, here he is. This is the one you have waited for. This is the one who's been prophesied of for thousands of years to take away your sins and to bring redemption and a new kind of glory to his people. That's a special privilege that all the prophets before John would be envious of, to have that role, to point to the one. That's what Jesus means when he says that the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. 
because now we're on the other side of the cross. Partakers of the new covenant that John the Baptist didn't get to experience, he could only proclaim and was saying it's at the doorstep. It's right here. Because all of those prophets, they looked forward to the Messiah. As as Isaiah said, we, we mentioned before, looked forward 700 years forward towards the Messiah as he's writing these things. And yet, now us as Christians today, we get the privilege of looking back to the cross with greater clarity than the prophets of the Old Testament. Think about it. Do you know what somebody in the Old Testament would do to have what you guys have in your laps right now? To have the completed Bible, God's full revelation to his people? Being able to see how it all fits together. I mean, they would sell all that they have to get a copy of the New Testament. Something that for many people in America today is just something that we leave on in the corner of a desk somewhere and allow to collect dust. You know, I've heard many people say things over the years like, oh, if only I could live in biblical times. If only I could have been alive to watch these things happen. I understand the sentiment of that, but we don't really mean that. We don't. It's true that I wish I had a time machine that I could go back to see and hear the Sermon on the Mount. I wish I could see, hear, and experience Jesus' upper room discourse with his disciples and see those intimate moments. Uh, I, I wish I could be there to witness Moses, par- uh, God part the Red Sea in front of Moses. I would love to see all of that. But I'd want to get right back in that time machine and come back here. It's true. <laughs> because, I mean... I'm confident that I wouldn't want to live in those times because many people died in that wilderness with Moses wandering around in the wilderness. They were grumbling and complaining in unbelief and God had to judge them for it. Since only two people actually managed to get to the promised land right from Egypt to the promised land, statistics of me being one of the faithful is pretty low. If I'm honest with myself. It's the way that it is. And frankly... Even in the New Testament, the early church still had a lot of mistakes. Just read the book of 1 Corinthians one day. They were messed up. Read some of church history. It was, it was dark. I mean, it was only in recent years that in the span of world history that we actually had a Bible in plain English for us to read. For many years, you could only, it was only printed in Latin. A language almost nobody could read. Even the priests couldn't read it at the time of the Reformation. Many of them at least. But yet I woke up today and I was able to pray to God. I didn't have to go to the priests. I didn't have to offer up a goat at the temple. I could just pray to my Father in heaven. How beautiful is that? And I was able to open up my Bible and read from it. And understand it. We have so many privileges that we don't even recognize that we have. And even now, you know, we're here worshiping together as a community of believers, collectively looking back 
to what Jesus has done for us on the cross and worshiping him from the heart as a community gathered here in South Amboy. Living with that anticipation again that the next thing on his calendar is him coming back. This is a fantastic time to be alive, church. Yeah, we have our difficulties. Oh, goodness, we have geopolitical problems these days. And yes, much like the book of Corinthians, the church is pretty messed up today too. But we have so many privileges today. This is why even the least in the kingdom of God is greater than the greatest of the Old Testament. It's truly amazing when you think about what we have as new covenant Christians. So my final encouragement to you guys is don't take this for granted. Don't let your Bible collect dust. Don't let your knees get soft because of lack of prayer or wherever your prayer posture is. That's between you and God. And let's not think we'd be happier in another time if we're not enjoying the fullness of what God has allowed us to enjoy in all of to enjoy with all of our privileges today that the saints of old would be envious of us for thanks be to God amen